If you would, take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 7 as we continue our study there. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we discussed the entirety of this text last week, verses 7 through 10. And there's a lot going on here. And I said last week that if we have the chance, we would spend some time looking at the prayer life of Jesus. Well, guess what? This is our chance. (laughs) And I hope you're not in a hurry to get through the book of Hebrews, because I'm not. So we'll take some time, maybe this week and next. I don't know how long it will take, but I want to highlight his prayer life. There are several reasons for this, because the author of Hebrews specifically uses this phrase to stand over all of Jesus' ministry to us, specifically as our great high priest. He says, in the days of his flesh, not meaning one particular day, like the evening in Gethsemane, or the prayer that he prays, the first one recorded that we're going to look at, at his baptism, not just one particular day, but in the days of his flesh, his entire sojourning, his tabernacling among us, he offered up prayers and supplications. This is, as it were, a summary for the author at least, or maybe the hymn that he's relying on to give us these words, as a summary of the entire ministry of Jesus on this earth. Prayers and supplications, offering up prayers and supplications. So the author of Hebrews, we know pretty much for certain that he was not an eyewitness account of the resurrected Lord, but he knew someone who was. And so the word of Christ, the story about Jesus, the truth about him was told and retold among the group of the first century believers very often. So much so that they didn't even really need to write it down until about uh, 50 or 60 AD, 20 to 30 years after Jesus was taken back into heaven. They talked about it so much that the oral tradition of Jesus' life was permeating the church. And so the facts about him, the truth about him, what he actually did, the actual events of his life are known and celebrated and even sung in the early church. This is most likely a hymn from a hymn. And so this hymn celebrates his ministry to us as our high priest and summarizes it all together as offering up prayers and supplication. And then he, then he even intensifies it with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And then he clarifies further, and he was heard. 
And he was heard because of his reverence. And so this is, we can look at Jesus' life and his entire petition to God as our great high priest and know for certain, based on this text, that it was acceptable. His work, his, as he says earlier, that a high priest is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, that Jesus' work on our behalf in relation to God was accepted. He was heard. Because of his reverence. Then he says, as I've mentioned, with loud cries and tears. We've been talking about and relishing in the idea that Jesus is appointed as a great high priest. Our eternal great high priest. And it's not even just because he's the son of God. He is able to serve you and minister to you as your great high priest in a sympathetic and gentle way because he took on himself human frailty. And obedience for him here was agonizing. And you need to appreciate that as you come to think about the ministry of Jesus towards you. That his prayers to the Father on your behalf and even on his own behalf were agonizing with loud cries and tears. There are only a very few times in my life where I could say that describes the types of prayers I offered up. Loud cries and tears that Jesus works on your behalf with the Father, praying, offering up prayers and supplications for you in this way. And so I think we can gain insight into the person of Jesus Christ, not just learning facts about him, but coming to know him, coming to see him and appreciate who he is and Relish in his glory, particularly in his role as our high priest. If we look at his prayer life, if we go to the text and we ask, what can be discerned from these instances where the text says he prayed? Why he's praying, how long he prays, where he goes to pray, what he's praying for, what has recently happened before him praying and what happens after he prays. And that's what we'll be doing today. I'm going to try to limit myself. I don't, it doesn't matter to me how many weeks we take for this. Um, as I said, I'm not really in a hurry to get through the book of Hebrews. And I think this is needful for us for another reason. There are some points of caution that you should have before you look at the life of Jesus with any particular cipher. So I read through Mark and John in preparation for this message, and I didn't have time to read through um, Matthew and Luke, but um, went through the places in Matthew and Luke where it talks about Jesus's ministry. And what I noticed, and I knew this before, but it just stood out again, that you've got to take the scripture in balance, Okay. And here's what I mean by that. This is just a caution before I'm kind of deconstructing what I'm trying to do and looking at Jesus's prayer life before we look at Jesus's prayer life. OK, and that's just because I have a concern for the honor due to the word of God to treat it properly, because I think you can do violence to the text in misappropriating or emphasizing things the text doesn't necessarily emphasize. All scripture is breathed out by God, so there's. 
there's value and eternal purpose to every word spoken in the Bible, but there is theological significance to how much time the Bible spends on certain points versus others. Okay, that's important. And what you'll notice when you read through the life of Jesus, in terms of emphasis, the Spirit is working in their hearts to write exactly what they wrote. You notice that the emphasis is not healing. It's not ministering to the poor. It's not feeding the hungry. The emphasis of Jesus' life isn't starting a movement. It's teaching. If you read through the Gospels, the pronounced emphasis of Jesus' ministry is to reveal God through His teaching. Obviously, we have the passion, and so that's the ultimate reason He came, to die in our place for our sins, to be resurrected by the power of God and taken into heaven. But the majority of His three years that He spent with His disciples is spent teaching. Yes, He heals the sick. Yes, He feeds the hungry. Yes, He ministers to the poor. He casts out demons. He does all of those things, but everything is under the context of His teaching. So, with that said, we do want to look at his prayer life. But just have it in your minds that the the Bible itself doesn't select any one thing for the life of Jesus other than his teaching to let stand out as the emphasis of his ministry. And I think this is important because... A a high priest, as I've already said, acts on behalf of man in relation to God. But as we discussed earlier, a few weeks ago, a high priest also acts on God's behalf to us. So he's an intermediary. He goes between God. He takes the concerns and needs of the people to God. And then he takes God's response and God's blessing to the people. So insofar as he takes our sin and our concern before the Father and deals with it there, he brings the blessing and the truth about the Father to us. As John says in John 12, 49, for I, Jesus speaking of himself, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So his work and ministry for you is representing God perfectly to you, and that is in his teaching. Prayer, therefore, is not the totality of the life that pleases God. And prayer, strictly defined as we might define it, is not the totality of what Jesus' ministry to us is. However, this phrase, as I've already said, Offering up prayers and supplications is what the author uses to summarize the totality of Jesus' ministry to you as your great high priest. So you've got to hold both those ideas in your mind. Jesus' life on earth wasn't all just prayer. Okay? He mainly came to reveal the Father. Okay? But his ministry to you as high priest is offering up your concerns, your prayers, your supplications, and even prayers for himself to the Father. So, there are two things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to use the instances that the gospel authors give us these insights into Jesus' prayer life, into his ministry, so that we might understand what it means for him to offer up these prayers and supplications. I want you to know Christ. Going back to what we talked about several weeks ago. I want you to know your Savior. 
And so in his role towards you as your great high priest, that's a title that most of us don't think in terms of. We think of Savior, Lord, Messiah, and all these things. We don't usually interact with this idea of him as our great high priest. Hopefully, after we've spent a few weeks preaching about that so far, you've begun to think of him that way more. And the benefits or the the blessings that come with thinking of him that way. So as we look at his prayer life, you can see this loud cries and tears, this interaction with the Father on your behalf, this even praying on his own behalf so that he might serve faithfully as your high priest. There are great insights to be had as we look at these instances, and that's what I want for you. I want your heart to be warmed towards your Messiah, towards your great high priest as you see him laboring in prayer on your behalf and for the sake of his people. But there's also a second reason that I'm doing this. I'm also trying to kindle and rekindle and bring to an overflowing passion the desire for earnest and eager gathered prayer. And I seek to do this humbly, and I often feel at a loss to know how to make this happen. Um, So in spending several weeks looking at Jesus' prayer life, my hope is that we would just follow his example and pray and be devoted to prayer. As Luke says of the first Christians, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. I'm trusting the Lord to work in our hearts to be the kind of people we ought to be Prayer is so significant in the life of a church, and I want us not to pray because it's on the schedule, not to pray out of a sense of guilt, but pray because we know the power of God. This is what Jesus says to the woman at the well. If you knew the power of God and who it is who says to you these things, you would ask him and he would give you the life that is eternal. Do you know the power of God? Do you feel the magnitude of who it is we're dealing with? The one who for all time has known all things. The one who knows the name of every star in every galaxy. The one who at a whim, the universe would cease to exist. And the one who every moment, by his will, by the word of his power, it continues to exist. If you knew the power of God, you would ask him. So when we come to the Lord in prayer, it's not just some mild spiritual discipline or even an important spiritual discipline. It is an outworking of faith that we know the one true God. And when we pray, when we, his people, pray in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the heir of all things, we are confessing that we do, in fact, believe in and know the power of God. And again, I do this humbly. I'm not saying I have all the answers of how we as a church can be this way, but it is my heart towards us that we be known as a people devoted to prayer. This is how Spurgeon says it in his sermon on Acts 12, 12. This is kind of an extended quote, 
but whenever you can quote Spurgeon, you should, just as a general rule. And this also shows you the quality of preaching a few hundred years ago, right? It was a great wonder that the infant church of Christ was not destroyed. Truly, she was like a lone lamb in the midst of furious wolves, without either earthly power or prestige or patronage to protect her. Yet, as though she wore a charmed life, she escaped the host of her cruel foes. Had not this child been something more than others, it had been slain like the innocents at Bethlehem. But being heaven-born, it escaped the fury of the destroyer. It is worth asking, however, with what weapons did this church protect herself? For we may very wisely use the same. She was preserved in her uttermost danger from overwhelming destruction. What was her defense? Where found she shield and buckler? The answer is in prayer. And then he quotes, Many were gathered together praying. Whatever may be the danger of the times, and each age has its own peculiar hazard, we may rest in calm assurance that our defense is of God. And we may avail ourselves of that defense in the same manner as the early church did, namely, by abounding in prayer. However poisonous the viper, prayer can extract its sting. However fierce the lion, prayer can break its teeth. However terrible the fire, prayer can quench the violence of the flame. But this is not all. The newborn church not only escaped, but it multiplied. From being as a grain of mustard seed, when it could all, could all assemble in an upper room, it has now become a great tree. Lo, it covers the nations, and the birds of the air and in flocks find shelter in its branches. Whence this wondrous increase? What made it grow? Outward circumstances were unfavorable to its progress. Upon what nourishment has it fed? What means were taken with this tender shoot that it may be so speedily developed? For whatever means were used of old, we may wisely use them today. Also, to strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die and to develop that which is hopeful in our midst. The answer is the fact that on all occasions, many were gathered together praying. While praying in the Spirit of God, while praying, the Spirit of God came down upon them. While praying, the Spirit often separated this man and that for special work. While praying, their hearts grew warm with inward fire. While praying, their tongues were unloosed and they went forth to speak to the people. And while praying, the Lord opened to them the treasures of His grace. By prayer, 
they were protected. And by prayer, they grew. And if our churches are to live and grow, they must be watered from the self-same source. Let us pray is one of the most needful watchwords which I can suggest to, a Christ, to Christian men and women. For if we will but pray, prayer will fill up the pools in the valley of Baca, yea, and open to us all the channels of that river of God, which is full of water, the streams whereof make glad the city of our God. That's my heart for North Star Baptist Church, and it has been a struggle. It's not to diminish the sacrifice of many, and I would argue it confirms our faith. Do you know how hard it is even for me personally to come with a good attitude and a clear mind to our week, midweek prayer meetings? It is a struggle. It's more difficult to come there with the right attitude and right heart than it is to come here and preach for 45 minutes. That's the enemy. He does not want you to pray together. Ever. And I'm not saying it all has to be then. I, I want all creativity and all resources to be poured into this aim that we would be devoted to prayer. I spent most of yesterday uh, smoking a brisket, but also weeding my yard. And when I was done weeding the yard, there was nothing but dry, dead grass and a lot of dirt. So I took away a lot of the green that was there. There's a lot of growth that can appear and spring up, even in the midst of trial, that is not from the Spirit. And once you take that all the way, it may look barren, but you're more ready for planting, more ready for the harvest, more ready for growth that the Lord would want. James, the brother of Jesus, says, You have not because you ask not. God desires to bless you, but more than desiring to bless you, He desires to answer your prayers for blessing. He will, based on that text, withhold blessing that He knows that you need because He would rather answer your prayer for that blessing than just bless you from behind the scenes. That's the God we serve. And our mind often doesn't have categories for that because He wants us to approach Him in faith. So this, unless you've already figured it out, this is a sermon. Right? I want you to do something. This isn't just a Bible lesson about the prayer life of Jesus. This is a sermon. I want to move you. I want to change your mind, to change our behaviors together so that we would devote ourselves to prayer. So as we look at the life of Jesus, I want these two things to happen. I want our hearts to be warmed to see this great Messiah of ours and see his labors of love in prayer as he offers up these prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears and for us to be moved to love for him. And at the same time, I want us to be moved to action as we follow his example and devote ourselves to prayer as a church. It's like 
Paul says in the armor of God. Now, this is a passage hopefully we're all familiar with. Put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. We're supposed to put it on praying at all times, with supplications in the Spirit. So a Christian who doesn't pray is like a soldier who trains and puts on maybe even some armor and takes to himself a weapon. But when the battle comes, stays in the barracks. A church that does not pray is like a garrison that trains and prepares and gets ready, but then when their nation is attacked, stays and doesn't confront the enemy. So with those two motives in mind, that we would see and be moved to love for our Messiah, our great high priest, and that we would be moved and driven to pray, let's look at Jesus' prayer life. And don't worry, we'll get out of here on time. The first, as I mentioned, is from Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. This is uh, the recording of Jesus' baptism, and Luke is the only one who highlights or underscores this. And in fact, what you'll find is that Luke often highlights Jesus' prayer life more than the rest, which is interesting. Um, But this is Jesus' baptism. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's the first prayer or instance of Jesus praying recorded in the Bible. His praying after or during his baptism. We don't know exactly what he was praying, the specific content of it. But we know from Peter that baptism itself is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Jesus didn't need to get a clear conscience. He was always sinless. So what might he have been praying in this situation as he's being baptized? We can get a clue, I think, from our text in Hebrews. It says, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus knew from the beginning, when the Son of Man comes into the world, He says, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus knows from the beginning that His road leads to Calvary. He is going to die. And so as He's being baptized, and we are baptized into His death, according to Paul in Romans 6, perhaps His very prayer is that God would raise Him from the dead. Perhaps he is praying that his offering of his body on our behalf as the sacrifice for our sins would be acceptable. And that would make perfect sense with the answer that comes from heaven to his prayer. You are my beloved son. In you, i.e. in all that you're doing, in all that you are and in all that you're doing on behalf of the people, I am well pleased. Your offering is acceptable to me. So just a few takeaways for this before we move to the next instance. Jesus prays for things to happen that will for sure happen. 
Do you think it was ever in question whether the Son of God, the eternal I Am, the Logos from all time, would not rise from the dead? No, it was prophesied that he would suffer these things at the hands of the rulers and then be raised again. He tells the disciples that multiple times. It's prophesied that I'm going to come back to life. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down of my own accord, I am able to take it up myself again. It was never in question. But Jesus here is likely praying that these things would happen, that his offering symbolized in his baptism, his death, burial, and resurrection would be acceptable to the Lord. And Jesus prays for the path of obedience. This is what he says to John when he comes to John and says, baptize me. John says, far be it from me, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, let it be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. That this is a symbol. This is basically the, inaugur- the inauguration, a preview from start to finish what his ministry is going to be. He will live righteously, take the sins of the people, be buried, killed, buried, and raised from the dead and received into glory. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus prays for the path of obedience. And God responds Powerfully, This is one of three instances recorded in the Gospels where the voice from heaven speaks audibly to those who are around. This is the first one. God responds powerfully. And I would argue it will be so with us. Maybe not from a literal voice from heaven, but when we pray for the path of righteousness and for the things that we know for sure will already happen, that God will glorify himself, that Jesus will return one day, that he will work all things out to our good for those who are called according to his purpose and love him. When we pray for the things that he has already promised to do, he responds powerfully and does them isn't that amazing like god god has already promised to do certain things and as we join him in our prayers he responds powerfully and does the things that he's already promised to do that should move you at the deepest level that you've been invited to accomplish the things that he has already promised to do through your prayers and he responds powerfully movingly, even majestically in response to those prayers. So what ought we to do? We ought to pray. We want to see God respond. He, Jesus promises, if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all nations to myself. The list could go on and on of the things that God has already promised he will do. And when we join in, we pray earnestly for God to do those things He responds powerfully and we sense a nearness and his pleasure resting on us. You are my children and you I am well pleased as we join him in his work. The next one is from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 or beginning in verse 35. Mark 1.35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. 
And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. See, there's that idea that his emphasis is the teaching and preaching of the message from God. For that is why I came out, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Again, we don't know the exact content of what Jesus is praying, but we know the context. He has just spent a significant amount of time doing a lot of healing, doing a lot of teaching, and he's being received well, and the crowds are gathering to him. So it's arguable, it's, it's very legitimate based on the context here that he is praying at least for two reasons, for spiritual renewal and for guidance. Spiritual renewal and guidance. Guidance because he decides not to continue where he was, where he was being received well, but to move on to other towns. Spiritual renewal. So he, he had spent a lot of time healing. We know from the instance with the woman with the discharge of blood that any time that he healed someone, power leaves him. So there's a sense in which Jesus is worn down. Even the Son of God is worn down in obedience. Should that encourage you or not? That even the Son of Man, when he comes and he does the will of God, it power leaves him and it wears him down. So if you feel beleaguered and tired and weary from obeying the Lord, Jesus knows exactly what you're experiencing because he experienced it too. So he needs spiritual renewal. And in our lives today, we have much available to us to help us in renewing our bodies. We have much available to us in renewing our minds. We have much available to us when it comes to renewing or restoring or refreshing our emotions. But we have very little available to us and very little understanding of what it means to get renewal at the soul level. Partly because your soul can be extremely dry and breaking and you won't even know it. When your emotions are a wreck, everyone is able to tell you that your emotions are a wreck. When your body is tired and in need of renewal, all of the molecules in your body and your muscles and your tissue is crying out that there's a problem. But when your soul is crushed, often we confuse it with emotional issues. But Jesus needs this renewal, and so do you. Do you even know how to distinguish between hunger of the flesh and a hunger of the soul? Do you know how to distinguish between tiredness of the body and tiredness of the soul? Do you know how to distinguish between emptiness at an emotional level and emptiness of the soul? Here's the thing, you may never be able to. But the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and bone and marrow, and everything is exposed to it. And prayer brings the spiritual renewal you need. You may not know how much you need the spiritual renewal, just know that you need it. This refreshing at a soul level is what Jesus knows he needs, and so he goes. He even forsakes sleep and breakfast for the sake of his soul 
needs. When's the last time you intentionally missed sleep and breakfast for the sake of restoring your soul? And Jesus had to do this. And also for guidance, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, I just feel like I should just raise my hand at any time, like right after. Yes, that's me. I like wisdom. I need more of it. And what does he say next? Does he say, go read some books, go to college, go to Bible college even, talk to some really smart people, watch some TED Talks, get it together. If you lack wisdom, go to the sources. No. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. As a Christian, you've been given access to the source of wisdom, the one who is even called wisdom. Jesus had to pray for guidance. It's not that he necessarily didn't know what he ought to do, but he operated in the days of his flesh, like I said a few weeks ago, like with his hands tied behind his back so that he could empathize with our weakness and frailty and limits. And Jesus prays for this direction. The wisdom of man in the situation he was in would say, all right, let's build a big building. Let's keep all of these massive crowds who are coming together. Let's start a movement. Let's move the ball forward. Let's get it going. Let's organize. And he says, no. I mean, the disciples even come out saying, hey, everyone's looking for you. Everyone wants to hear more. Everyone has, they're bringing in more sick people. You got, we got to get to work. We got to do more. We got to build on this progress. And he says, let's leave. This has Davidic overtones. If you're familiar with the story of David, King David, he kills a lot of Philistines. Okay, there's no other way to slice it. He does that often. And in many cases, he's doing it outside of the operations of Saul's kingdom. And in one instance, in every instance rather, he is praying before he attacks. In every instance, he brings out a, a, a Levite, and they pray, and they discern the will of God, and then they go and attack. And the answer is yes, 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 yes. Over and over and over, God says, yes, go destroy them. Yes, go destroy them. But in one case, they bring out the Levite, he prays, and God says, don't do it this time. I want you to set an ambush over here, attack them in a different way. Why? Why should it be that way? To show us that the sufficiency does not belong to us. And in praying, we're honoring the fact that we don't possess the wisdom. We're asking of God who gives, gives generously to all. So what seems right to us is often not in line with what God would have us do. So Jesus prays for this guidance so he knows now's the time to leave. When it seems counterproductive. And it doesn't seem right. This, this deep wisdom of God is what ought to guide us. So if you lack that, ask of him. Jesus shows us that even he seeks this guidance from the Lord. And we have developed more and more ways to operate without a desperation for God's wisdom. We have a lot of methods we have a lot of policies. We have a lot of programs and tricks and ways to do it. And not that any of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But when we rely on those methods 
as a way to discern what the right way is and we do not pursue the Lord for his answer, even if the answer ultimately is the same. In those cases where it's not the same, we're operating contradicting the will of God and against his wisdom. Here's just a few examples of very simple, basic things where you should often feel at a loss. You may have even read dozens of books to know how to do these things, but it shows over and over that we are desperate. We need the wisdom of God. Raising your children correctly? You ever feel at a loss to know how to do that well? Loving your spouse? the way that Christ has called you to do? Dealing with difficult friendships. You can read all the friendship books you want to. You'll be stumped often. What about encouraging someone who seems beyond encouragement? What about rebuking someone who seems entrenched in their rebellion? What about just the strength to do all that God has commanded? We are desperate for the wisdom of God. And Jesus is our example of that before he makes a big decision, we're going to see this often in his life, he prays for wisdom, for guidance. So what ought we to do? We ought to pray earnestly, ask of God, and he will give generously. The next instance comes from Luke's gospel again. Luke, I'm trying to arrange these chronologically. So that's why we're going back and forth between a couple of different books here. Luke chapter 5. Verses 15 through 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to, gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The context is, is he has just healed the leper, the feared disease among the Jews. There wasn't an ailment or affliction that they feared more than leprosy. And Jesus heals the leper. And so this word spreads around the surrounding region and people flock to him in big crowds and he's healing them and he's teaching them. You ever feel really busy? This is really, really busy. You got hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who are gathering together to hear you teach on a daily basis and you're interacting with each one who has any kind of ailment and healing them. And perhaps even on an individual level teaching them and then telling your disciples to the side. He's probably exhausted because of how busy he is. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luther, it is said... Um, in speaking about prayer, he said, I have so much to do that I can't help but pray four hours a day. You ever feel really busy, too busy to pray? That's not a biblical category. This is Jesus' example to us as well. As all of these people are coming to him and he's healing everyone, he's teaching everyone, maybe he could have spent this time in preparation or in talking with people or organizing things. He just leaves the whole scene 
and goes to desolate places and prays. Why desolate places? Why leave the whole scene? Couldn't the Son of Man, the Son of God, the I Am, the Eternal One, pray like we think that we can do at an excellent level just in our minds while we're doing whatever we got to do and just having a conversation with the Lord in our minds? Could Jesus not do that? Of course he could. Of course he could. But he had to deal with distractions just like we do. And he also is sanctifying the time. He's setting it aside, offering it to the Lord. This is a special time. I could be doing all these things, but I'm carving this out, setting it aside just for you, Father. Jesus is our example, not just because he did it, because he needed to and he wanted to. He wanted to set aside this time. He wanted to take it out of his busy schedule and give it to the Lord. What about you? There are very few instances where I have taken special care to go out, to carve out time in my schedule, to go out to desolate places and pray. But each of those have been extremely meaningful. Because it is, as it were, an offering to the Lord. You think of Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was received. Cain's was not. Are we bringing the best and the unblemished? Are we bringing what is convenient for us? The scraps. What we offer to the Lord. Jesus would withdraw. Go to desolate places and pray. And also, this is the last one we'll cover today. Luke 6. Just the next chapter over. Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Some of us may read that last verse and say, well, a lot of good that prayer did him picking these guys, and Judas ends up betraying him. But according to John 6, verse 64, yes, there is a chapter in John with over 64 verses. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is very intentional, even in the choosing of Judas. This is the only time in all the Bible where it specifically says that Jesus prays all night. Doesn't sleep at all, prays through the entirety of the night. He probably did more times the gospel authors choose this instance to highlight that he prayed all night. Why? Because all of Jesus' life is important, of course. But beyond his actual passion, so that the the uh, trial before Pontius Pilate and Herod and his death in our place, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. Beyond that, 
beyond the events of the Passion, this is the most historical, important piece of his ministry. Think about it. In selecting these 12 men, he essentially begins the church. He also guarantees that he will be betrayed through selecting Judas and bringing him into the inner circle. But he also creates the apostles, the sent ones who will go out and carry forth his mission after he is taken into heaven. We are commanded to pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest. The fields are white, ready for harvest. Pray that the master of the harvest would send laborers out into the harvest. We need the development of passionate, selfless, driven, spirit-filled leaders. The proclamation of the gospel and all true Christianity has as their foundation Jesus Christ, but it also comes through the apostles. The way Jesus chooses to make this mission continue after he's gone is through these men. And he brings in Paul, as well as one untimely born, but still apostles. So in selecting these men, he basically guarantees and sets into motion this thing that has been going on for 2,000 years, bringing all God's sons and daughters to glory. So it is fitting that he would set aside an entire night, get no sleep, even compromise his own emotional and physical health, because we all need sleep, even the Son of God, And pray to sanctify that time. And as I was reading Mark's version of this instance, I was moved to tears just because as I read these names, all 11 of them were murdered for believing in Jesus. With the exception of John, and his fate might have been worse than being murdered. Exiled and tortured. And there has been for almost 2,000 years since their time, men and women who continued the work, who labored, selfless people who denied themselves, intentionally denied themselves, took up the cross, the execution instrument, and followed Jesus even to many of their own demise. And they had all different levels of strength, Different levels of skill, different gifts, different talents, different levels of intelligence, different levels of influence. But without exception, all of them, if you read their stories, they were devoted to prayer. What about us? Have you ever felt so concerned for the sake of the advance of the gospel that you prayed all night? out alone, no sleep, so deeply concerned for the advance of the truth about Jesus to the ends of the earth and in your own towns and across the street that you prayed all night. Do we really care that much? I think there's actually a bigger problem than even that, a lack of concern. I think a lot of us care a very great deal about the advance of the gospel But I think at the same time, we don't sense our desperation, our utter inadequacy to make it happen. 
That's what should drive us to prayer. We would rather organize than pray like this. We'd rather have a lot of events than pray like this. We would rather create a really cool and seamless Sunday morning. We'd rather prepare all the great sermons than pray like this. We would rather not have our lives inconvenience and schedules messed up and have to say no to many things that we really enjoy in our lives than to pray like this. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. The preaching of God's word is important. Having things going on at the church and all these different things we try to do like Sunday school and prayer meeting and all this kind of stuff. The organizing that we do. But on an individual level, I think we would rather do all that than be this devoted to prayer. And I think we sense, we lack a sense of our desperation. If the gospel is to advance, it will be through prayer. What we need, people, is for those that we talk to to experience the new birth. You can't make that happen talked about evangelism and missions this morning. That miracle of the new birth is something you and I cannot do. We are utterly inadequate to make this gospel advance in the ways that it should. In fact, even the last prophecy at the close of the Old Testament is uh, Elijah will come, right? Embodied in John the Baptist, and he will turn the hearts of the sons to their fathers and the hearts of of the fathers to their sons. This heart change that needs to happen is something you and I just are completely inadequate to do. We need people to be convicted of their sins. We need their minds to change about God. We need them to see their utter dependency on His mercy and grace and to sense the reality of Judgment Day. We can't do that. You need the Spirit going out before you and making these things happen. As we speak the gospel, His power joining in our efforts even as we work as He is empowering us to do this. You need to feel your utter inadequacy to do what we've been commanded to do, to take His message to the ends of the earth before you will pray like this. Spending all night being concerned, eager for the gospel to make it to these places. So did I accomplish my goal? Is your heart warmed? Do you have more affection for Jesus Christ as he labors in prayer for these things? Do you see his ministry to you as your great high priest? To the unbeliever, do you see his beauty do you see his care for you? Do you see the fact that he goes through this not out of obligation, but because he wants to be your sympathetic high priest? To the believer, let's pray for prayer. Let's pray that we would follow Jesus' example and pray like this. Even as he is offering up loud cries and tears, the prayers and supplications as his role as high priest, we draw near with him as a kingdom of priests, royal priesthood, offering sacrifices to God of our very own prayers. So with that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. 
Thank you for giving us the accurate and trustworthy record of Jesus' life and ministry. And I don't know what it would look like exactly. I have ideas, but I don't know all that it would look like. But please make us a people devoted to the teachings of the apostles and to the prayers. Might we have love for our fellow man and the esteem for your glory to even say no to things that are good, that we enjoy, so that we may pray and earnestly seek your power so that we may do what you've commanded us to do. Help us feel our desperation for your help in these ways. Strengthen us for prayer. Make us all mighty in prayer for your namesake. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.